get Stephen Cluxton this morning, Ashling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can retire. This is your future. No, re- no pressure. Thanks, David. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go up and uh, find out what room he is. Knock on the door. OTB AM. Live. Weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Off the ball. Daily. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until six. Our text number is five three one zero six at cost of thirty cents. As well as listening in across the country on your radio and News Talk now, you can watch us in our live streams on YouTube and on Facebook. Time now for the Sunday paper review. We're delighted to be joined over the next ninety minutes in studio by the chief sub editor and Irish boxing correspondent of the Sun, Kevin Byrne, and the Irish Independent GAA writer, Connor McKeown. Kevin and Connor, good afternoon. Hey, John. How are we lads? We doing well? Pretty good. Very, Very good. good, John. Thank you. We'll go through the papers for anybody watching us on the digital and social channels and uh, the front pages of the sports section Sunday Independent here we have oh no Anana new United keeper caught off guard by friendly fire in that friendly against uh, Lons Levy ignores Byron's deadline for Kane deal but that's not surprising uh, Waterford's final say Cork brace for Dacia challenge Kamogi special in the Sunday Independent sport we also have the Sunday Times sports section. Last week's final shows that football needs to change, writes Michael Foley. We also have not bad for starters. Ireland Open World Cup warm-ups with convincing win over Italy. And Sexton to play against Portugal, writes Peter O'Reilly. This is in this kind of unofficial game this week in the training camp. England and France stunned defeats in the rugby. We've got the Sunday World back page. Are you buying or selling? Harry Kane, Daniel Levy, Levy's game of 100 million transfer poker. Could see Kane leaving Tottenham for free in 2024. Going to be tough to top City points tally ahead uh, of the Community Shield. Pat Spallan, wasteful carry, not good enough. Uh, we also have Red, slow and wooing Romeo, Romeo Lavia. Cluxton sets the standard for the rest, right? Sean McGoldrick and Klopp's men need time to gel. John Aldridge there on um, Liverpool. We have the back of the sun on a Sunday. Good headline. Owen Kaiser, Doris's day about the rugby. Caelan Doris, two tries. Lundahoy on uh, Rasmus Hoyland, the new signing for Manchester United. Pep's a city sticker. He eyes deal beyond 2025. Bit of a nothing story, though, isn't it? Yosko in Matoma's next up. Do Manchester City want Brighton's Caro Matoma? Sunday, Mirror Sport. Bayern put their house on Kane. German giants line up luxury villa for England captain. Spurs star on brink of 95 million pound move. Arteta is not all about us. Weiss drugs KO. So Anthony Joshua is without an opponent for Saturday's fight at London's 0-2 after Dillian Weiss failed a drugs test. Back of the Irish Daily Mail. Up and running. Ireland starts series with a win but concern for Farrell over Conan. Don't think the concern is that big now. He's going to be okay. Rory Keane writes, How Dublin took nine steps to heaven. So where do Pow and Ireland go from here? Well, probably not to a new contract. And Spirit of Lark and Camogie President Hilda Breslin talks integration, equity and inclusivity. And talking about her great-grandfather, James Larkin. Remember the 1913 lockout. We have a piece of Paul Rowan in the new section of the Sunday Times. How international or I'll say that again how internal turf war soured Ireland's tournament dream of the Women's World Cup after Vera Powell led the team to a stark first finals nothing seemed to go right not least her relationship with captain Katie McCabe kind of a, a deep dive there we have the business post Man United's 900 million Adidas deal highlights clubs enduring appeal globally writes Ellie Donnelly an Irish love affair with Man U has become an unrequited one don't know about that given what's happening today in the athletic Bill game it'll be a full house at 
the Aviva and also an Ireland Thinks poll in the Sunday Independent with some sports elements to it. Uh, when do you think the All-Ireland Hurling and Football Final should be played? 49% safe to September. 8% July. And we also have, following the public disagreement between Ireland women's soccer manager Vera Powell and Katie McCabe, the captain, over substitution decisions, who do you believe is right? 36% Vera Powell, 9% Katie McCabe, 16% neither, 39% don't know. I feel that it's only just to give Dublin and Kerry some breathing after last week so we don't forget about it and we're not talking about the Ruby World Cup and the Premier League returning uh, Connor and Kevin so soon and it probably dominates most of the articles in the Sunday papers today would you agree? Yeah it probably does it's it, it's a very obvious jumping off point the, the inter-county season as we know it is over and the what you know what happens at, at club level won't consume such uh a level of coverage over the next little while because it takes a while to to get to the point where there's anything that might be considered of national interest. Um, and we had a Dublin Kerry final, and of of like the build up was probably justified because there was such significance of it on the line. And I think the 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 saturation of coverage in the week since um, kind of covers you know like Michael Foley's piece is interesting today in the in the Sunday Times because he broadens the thing from. Analysis as to how and why Dublin won, uh, into how you could use it maybe as a sign um, of football when it's played at the highest level, and the crisis basically that it's facing from an aesthetic point of view, from an entertainment point of view. Um, now I do, th- I don't think the game last week is a fair kind of a testing ground for that. You know, like it was a very very wet day, and in that sort of situation teams are always going to run the ball more because you can't play that skidded pass you know that, that kind of hops off the turf and when that happens it can be very very cagey and possession orientated but I don't know like I found last week I don't know what, what you thought lads but I, I like I found it very sort of compelling at the same time um, but maybe that's because of what was on the line maybe that's because of you know we're so aware of the culture around the game I suppose like the, the the, the the test for for all of this is if you know the alien came down from Mars or if you you suddenly got a, a bout of uh, amnesia and you were showing the sport without knowing any of the any of the significance over who was playing or what was on the line like what was it subjectively entertaining would anybody say that for definite I would say I watched it pretty much as a neutral and yeah I did find it compelling and highly competitive I guess the overall point is that the GA season in and in itself became it it wasn't really must watch fair the matches weren't in un- football now in we're football talking. effectively yeah it, it, it what the matches weren't unmissable and while the final itself was compelling it didn't elevate uh, it didn't go beyond and it wasn't a much hoped for much hyped Kerry Dublin final which um, kind of Michael Foley seems to su- suggest exists in the minds of uh, people more than reality finals between the two counties have not really been complete crackers over the years maybe semi-finals but he talks about some of the um like the hand passes and the kicks and solutions for making football more entertaining. He expands on a piece he did obviously with you in uh, off the ball with uh, Joe earlier in the week with yes. with Morris Brosnan and Colm Keyes as well. To there's a number of uh, suggestions there to make football a little bit more entertaining and whether or not any of those will be taken up in the next few years, we'll see. Yeah, I, I can't. I'm, I have skin in the game, so I can't really talk with uh, objectivity. 
uh, because I, I'm from Dublin, but I found it incredibly tense and utterly enthralling. Yeah, and I think both teams tried to. I think both teams tried to still. Play. As was last year's semi final. Yeah, and like when was the last time we had a great All Ireland final? Well, 2017. 2017. That was the last great All Ireland final because you had it between two teams who fancied themselves to play man on man and win the game. And what you had was a one point win for one of the teams. So I'm not sure we're ever going to come to that that point ever again where two teams will say, OK, we'll go man to man all over the pitch. We'll back ourselves. And I don't think any coach, you, we'll, you will ever have a situation where two coaches will approach the final utterly convinced that they will win on those terms. You know, without even, there was no even plus one that day, you know. But prior to that, I'm not sure how many great All-Ireland finals there have been. You have to go back to 2008, maybe there was a great conclusion to that final. 2011 was was, was great because of, again, the significance and how it played out towards the end. Um, I remember 05, Kerry Toronto thought was an excellent final. 05 was an excellent final as well. But what I'm saying is I think, I think they're, I think they're far more rare than than we by get their ready. nature finals. Yeah, are I think they are, tense. and I, by their nature semi-finals, hurling would be in the same bracket as well. Like you think back to the last decade, up to from twenty ten up to twenty twenty, how many classic? But they all nearly meld into each other. We had unbelievable All Ireland semi-finals. The finals did not live up to the same um, level of entertainment, but um, you know, like there's there's a lot of. There's a lot of coverage around today as to why Dublin won the game. I found this an interesting passage in Mick's piece in the Sunday Times um, where he said, the exhaustive analysis over the past week seemed to create a gap between Dublin and Kerry that felt larger than the actual two-point margin. Even though Kerry were level entering injury time, the width of a fingernail from victory. That's absolutely true. But what I'd also say about that is that, you know, Dublin, this Dublin team, more so than, say, the, the great Kerry team, um, or the great Limerick team or the great Kilkenny team who are really their only um, their only real comparable uh, rivals for the greatest inter-county team of all time the history of this Dublin team and, and the story of their greatness isn't necessarily the huge performances they go out when they tank a team it's the number of times they have been they've they've pulled it off when the title was on the line like they have once won so many All Ireland finals now by one or two points. They were three points down in the fifty second minute on a wet day with poor scoring the last eight. That was a huge turnaround. And I think the enduring the enduring legacy of the Dublin team, when eventually it's all done and dusted and they do finally um sail off into the sunset, is that, you know, that idea, you know, the American notion of a clutch team and a, a clutch player, when the chips were on the when the chips were all down and the All Ireland was on the line the number of times that they have held their nerve and executed the biggest plays isn't really uncanny. Haven't lost into finals since 1994. Uh, Pat Spillane, Wasteful Kerry have no one to blame but themselves. Dublin's physicality and their ability to translate turnovers into scores were key. Just some of the passages. Fenton's performance was the key in his eight previous duels against Kerry's Jack Barry. He was held scoreless in five, only managed one in each of the other games. Last Sunday, he had 31 possessions, scored two points and bossed the game from start to finish. And then he adds as well, um, there are several reasons why Kerry lost, not least because they surrendered three-point leads on two occasions. They just got two points from play in the first half and only one in the first 22 minutes. In the last 26 minutes, they could only add one more point from play. They went 14 minutes without any score in the second half, converted just nine out of 19 shots in open play. Their build-up play was too slow, too cautious, too often they ran into cul-de-sacs. They didn't utilise their kicking game. They were slow to shoot. 
it's in uh, for all the talk of a drab final and stuff like it, it it did really deliver in terms of box office names stars to the fore obviously Clifford had an David Clifford had an off day for Kerry and that probably cost him it's been highlighted I think by both Pat Spillane and Colm O'Rourke in the Sunday Independent that Kerry's greatest strength is their greatest weakness so if you can if you can somehow nullify him um, which Dublin I suppose successfully did even though he scored you know what did he, what did he two get from play and one three and set up one two I think as well so that's probably successful to nullify him otherwise he's he's scoring you know upwards of nearly 10 points and maybe adding adding a few as well so if you can somewhat nullify him and uh, bring your own big players to the fore then you're going to deliver and I guess for Dublin as well the amount of storylines the, the, the Desi Farrell storyline which is um, touched on by Dermot Crow in the Sunday Independent just all the stuff he went through you know as Dublin manager he he's he won in his first year but then all the stuff that happened with Covid as well he goes through it and um, he says the first All-Ireland in 2020 didn't earn him the credit winning an All-Ireland normally would do it was riddled with caveats public opinion needed more persuasion they didn't beat Kerry en route to winning and the All-Ireland final was soon forgotten the following April his lowest moment came with the exposure of the Dublin training session being conducted in breach of uh, health restrictions a PR disaster that led to a 12 week suspension for Farrell and later on the piece you know he mentions how the Dublin players such as um James McCarthy and Brian Fenton said they did it for Desi. So, like, as well as the Dublin players making history and uh, winning their ninth All Ireland title, was it James James McCarthy, Stephen Cluxon, and Michael, Michael Simons, Simons uh, and other players? You know, moving on to eight, uh, seven, and all the conversation about the footballer of the year. I think there's lots of debate about that one as well. There's it did deliver in box office terms. Like there were so many kind of star names to hang the headlines on, which is handy for us in in journalism as well because there's so many different points of entry to write about yeah you can even talk about Colin Pascal in, mm. in his own uh, guise as somebody worthy of an article that you're, you could pick out so many and Clifford obviously as well um, is, is a case study in himself by the way Claire won the Premier Junior Camogie Championship beating Tipperary by 3-7 to 1-8 at Croke Park uh, in football Leicester have defeated Coventry by two goals to one in the championship the best thing I saw in the papers all day lads was this photo above Sean McGoldrick's article. I don't know if you can see it there, folks, but there's a few things in Sean McGoldrick's article which is lauding Stephen Cluxton, and rightfully so. There's a quote here. What is often overlooked is that it wasn't until 2011, Cluxton's 10th season and his 55th championship appearance, that he finally won an All-Ireland medal. And above that is a photo of Colm Gooch Cooper scoring in the 2011 final. It was early in the first half, if I remember rightly. Mick Fitzsimons, the face in anguish, and then Stephen Cluxton, just in pained expression on his face as the ball went into the back of the net. Who would have thought that later that day, Cluxton would kick the winning point and Dublin would have nine All-Irelands 12 years later? Amazing. Yeah, I, I read a couple of pieces during the weekend and I was... The moment in time, snapshot in time, it could have gone the other yeah. way, you know. But I'm always uh, sort of slightly incredulous now when people go to the bother of wasting words by saying that... Stephen Cluxon is probably the greatest goalkeeper of all time. I think like that argument is is well and truly closed. The only question that's left is is he the greatest f- footballer of all time? And he can definitely make that argument with what he did this year. Like he had effectively a perfect season. He conceded one goal, and the two points that he kicked in the final were were absolutely off the charts. But going back to the piece that Kevin mentioned about Desi Farrell, you know, with those guys coming back with Jack and and Paul Mannion and and Stephen Cluxon. You know, you have to remember, you're, like, you're taking a huge risk. You're running the risk of not winning, you know. And what does that do to your legacy then? What does that say? And there was, there was a big sense maybe that if Kerry got another one, you know, had they won back to back, 
particularly beating Dublin in a final, which is not something that they've done since 85 or 86. Um, and particularly after the bit of the commentary the previous year that, oh, well, the Dublin team didn't have Conor Callaghan or the lads were away. You know, if, if Kerry had won that one, I think we'd have a significant erosion from the Dublin squad this year and Kerry would be going on to win three in a row next year. Clifford would have won consecutive footballers of the year, which he, he might well still do. Um, but the era would be over, I suppose. And that's that's what was at stake last Sunday. And that's why I think it was it was so compelling because um, it wasn't just a case of, see, can we knock one more out of this? I think there was wider ramifications for people's legacies and, and what direction the next few years are going to go in football. You don't think the era is over? I think the era is over for Dublin. Yeah, it is. But I think, well, put it this way, if if management stayed on and they kept, you know, erosion to the squad to a minimum. Now, I'm not sure where their motivation comes from for doing it again. Um, but I, I think, and I know, I know we'll probably talk about this, the season is now much shorter for inter-county players. So the commitment is obviously full on while they're there. But... Like one of the best things that Dublin did, did this year, and actually, Michal Clifford does a great piece in the Daily Mail where he he notes the nine steps that Dublin um, took, or, or nine nine of the things that they did well to win in All Ireland. Yeah, it's a great piece. Yeah, one of the things that he left out, um, and that I thought was a huge element to it, um, which is um, the way they timed the season. You know, like a lot of people didn't really get a sense of what was happening this year no. with, with the round robins until it was nearly also over. Mayo winning the league, yeah. Galway being so good, and for a team like Dublin, particularly with their age, um, with their with their age uh, profile and the players coming back and trying to, you know, f- find where they're coming, it wasn't about doing well in Division Two. It wasn't about winning Leinster at a canter. It wasn't even about, you know, beating Roscommon and Kildare early. All they had to do was get out of that group and peak at the right time, and the timing element element of it the fact that they can peak for those three or four games and win in All-Ireland would lead you to believe that they could probably do it again and I think the big question is whether they want to do it again You mentioned uh, Cluxton there's no debate about him being the greatest goalkeeper of all time and possibly you know one of the greatest footballers of all time is he is he 41, 42 um, we've seen Buffon it's mentioned by Sean McGoldrick he's Luigi Buffon has retired at the age of 45 do you think Cluxton has I, d- I definitely think he has the ability to go on for a couple more years He's he played a flawless final against Kerry haven't seen him make any mistakes his kicks are as good as ever 23 gathered by Dublin uh, and a couple of points as well flawless goalkeeping performance and as well as that probably just the confidence he gives the rest of the group do you think he has a desire or like I'm sure he has the ability to go on but do you think he has a desire to go on a couple more years because if he stays on and Dublin lose two or three experienced players they, they still retain his leadership at the back and they still retain an awful lot of the experience that they need Well I think if management stay around there's a fair chance that the players who came back now more particularly Jack McCaffrey and Paul Mannion might stay on for another year and then Dublin are a very serious prospect The Cluxon thing is strange because you know I do think part of the reason that he came in or maybe the main reason that, he, that they invited him back in was that there was injury issues with Evan Comerford who had well and truly assumed the mantle mm. as number one goalkeeper um, and I think they were pretty happy you know like not that anyone's ever going to be able to step into Stephen Cluxon's shoes but like Evan is one of the best goalkeepers in the country you know he, he is an exceptional replacement um, for Cluxton you know with Evan back fully fit now uh, would they be just kind of happy to leave it there like it would be the perfect way for Cluxton to go out you know Um that was, you know, some people that I know that were knocking great mileage out of the fact that, you know, Kerry can never get revenge on 
Gluckson and some of these open players because they'll never see them again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Colin O'Rourke in the Sun Independent. Uh, Dublin almost have developed a culture which is communist in tone. The individual is completely subservient to the team. No ego is allowed. That's one of his uh, observations. The another one, Brian Fenton is central to this. He's the best midfielder of the last 50 years. So obviously he's better than Jack O'Shea if he says that. There were a lot of good ones in that time. He was brilliant on Sunday and he and Kieran Kilkenny were safe havens for players to pass the ball to, knowing that they would use it wisely. Some of the writing on Dublin and Kerry. O'Rourke was on form. I think he was enjoying both paying uh, Dublin a few compliments, but also kind of reminding them that, you know, Mead, uh, he's a Mead man at the same time. So he's thrown a few daggers in there as well. Just a few gags at Dublin's expense. But uh, like he mentions, as does Pat Spillan, how James McCarthy, he believes, was lucky to stay on the yeah. pitch for the duration of the match. There's always a rub, isn't there? A, just a little one. <laughs> and uh, um, he says that Cluxton's... Uh, his return can be proclaimed a complete success he may even decide to stay on now that he has got a second wind he might end up getting his second his last medal in the same envelope as the bus pass as he doesn't like presentation functions Uh, we have Kevin Byrne here and Conor McKeown on the Sunday paper review we're talking about Dublin and Kerry at the moment plenty to get through between now and half three Uh, Tommy Conlon just a, a quote I liked here in test cricket they talk about building pressure on the dangerous batsman get the bowlers to pin him down with balls he cannot play until eventually cracks and starts going for risky shots to get runs on the board. They may have been a parallel here with David Clifford in the last quarter. Dublin had kept the ball away from him for so long that the pressure had built inside his head. The result was anxiety in his normally immaculate kicking action. The big squeeze all over the pitch eventually paid dividends on the player they wanted to squeeze more than any other on David Clifford. And I thought there was a very nice piece by Mark O'Shea actually uh, in the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday just talking about his own experience and, and his own uh, sadness about losing his father in 2002 and Darren Moss's father obviously as well and they lost the RR in that year and um, obviously David and Paulie have had a very difficult year losing their mother and uh, this just quote here that's why this week I'm not alone in this if the whole county could it would wrap up the two lads their sister Shelley and their father Dermot in the most caring of embraces and also, from a footballing perspective, Dubs shouting from McCarthy should not deny David his just reward in terms of being named Footballer of the Year. Yeah, I feel sorry for David. It was just, just didn't go uh, his way last weekend. You know, it was an interesting one. I was, I was keeping tabs just on, like, like most people were who were who were at the game working at it, just to see, like, how is it that Kerry get him the ball so much? So I was recording every possession, um, just with a little dash down on my my notebook and after 22 23 minutes I had one little dash uh, and that was it you know so there is probably some there is probably some truth to the theory that by the time Kerry were actually able to get in possession he hadn't really found his flow now I think he finished the first half with eight possessions um, he'd set up a point he'd scored one himself he'd set up the goal um, but he was getting on a lot of ball kind of at the edge of the D with his back to goal and just shifting it off to the players around him, which is really not the the areas you want to get Clifford into. And then even in the second half, he, he took that shot from over on the right sideline, um, as we look at it from underneath the Hogan stand, and you were thinking, that's probably not the kick that you, you want to be taking to get yourself into the game, you know. But such was the kind of infrequency with which he was getting possession compared to the norm at that stage I think it was all he had to go on so it's tough like it's an interesting question this week um, if you take take out the, the, the sentimentality that Mark O'Shea um, highlights very very nicely as you point out you know like going into the final I think Clifford was miles ahead in the footballer of the year you know like so if you, if you take his championship 
performances. He played eight games. He had poor games against Tipperary in the first round of Munster, against Tyrone in the quarter final, and arguably again in the final. But the other five were man of the match performances. But I suppose it, the question is what weighting do you put on the final and, and how many, how, how, how much does the argument go against him because he had those. But who does it go in favour of then? Does it well, go really in favour of James McCarthy then? For the same great reason, yeah. So I mean, is it Cluxton and Fitzsimons then? Uh, well, yeah, well, I think it's Fenton. Fenton. Yeah. <laughs> like if the ter- for the third time. Yeah, if, 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 sorry, if it's not Clifford, I think it's Fenton. I, I still think the, the argument for Clifford is, is almost overwhelming. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be inclined to shout anybody down who makes the, the argument that Clifford is footballer of the year because what he did going up to the final, I think, had him so far out in front. Um, I think it's a strange year that way. You know, it's very weird in, in the history of the footballer of the year award. Um, I've never seen a player get it after not having a good last game of the year whether that's a final or a semi-final or whatever but I think Clifford is a special case I think uh, if memory serves me I think Lee Keegan won one in a year that Dublin won the All-Ireland Andy Moran as, as well Andy Moran as well yes. so, but, but both of them had good finals and, and good years and kind of they, they put it up valiantly to Dublin on the day uh, Colin O'Rourke writes about it as well he writes about Fenton he says uh, yeah with Dublin there's a freedom of expression for individuals which may appear contradictory Brian Fenton is central to this he's the best midfielder of the last 50 years and there were a lot of good ones in, yeah. in that time. He was brilliant on Sunday and he and Kieran Kilkenny were safe havens for yeah. uh, players to pass the ball to. Like Fenton stood up really hugely in, against Mayo, Monaghan and Kerry and Dublin got over the line and won the All-Ireland. Yeah, I think there's an issue with Fenton that he, he's so good um, and has been so good that unless he he totally dominates games, like he, he's nearly a victim of his own standards now. We don't see his performances as being worthy of Footballer of the Year. We see it as being less worthy than his previous Footballer of the Year performances, which isn't the same thing. And actually, the year that Andy Moran won it, there was a strong enough case for Fenton. Um, so, like, you could be in a situation where Fenton, who turned 30 or turns 30 this year, could be going for his fourth Footballer of the Year, which would actually bring him level with Jack O'Shea. But look, he's in that bracket. I'm not sure the Dublin players or, or people that are that close to the team are going to get too excited about football or the year anyway um, it was very much about the collective this, this season well after writing it off for so many years <laughs> that, it doesn't matter like they can't, they can't. Well, this to me was a real legacy game lads this was a real uh, game for the history of Gaelic Athletic Association and since 1884 to me when I was growing up Kerry were the impenetrable force they were the Real Madrid they were the establishment uh, and they always had Dublin's number even in the 70s and 80s when Dublin won a couple uh, of years against them 76 and 77 when you're t- talking about the greats of the game, you're talking about Mick O'Connell, you're talking about Jack O'Shea, you're talking about Mick O'Dwyer on the line, you're talking about that team that won eight All-Irelands in, in 12 seasons between 75 and 86. And Kerry, for me, were always the the, the, the team at the top. And Hefo's Dublin broke that for a while, but not really consistently. Whereas I think when we're looking back at the, back at the Dublin legacy, we'll be talking about this team as these are some of the greatest players to ever play Gaelic football. And Stephen Cluxton and Brian Fenton are right at the front of that. Yeah, James McCarthy too. I've done so. I'll do someone a disservice because I've read a few guy pieces today, and I forget who wrote it. But one of the journalists wrote today that we're probably likely to, in seventy-seven years, look upon Dublin. Now most of us won't be here in seventy-seven years, but we we'll look upon this Dublin side as the team of the century. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. It's 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 difficult. As I once again pointed to the the Cluxton Fitzsimons anguish when Gooch put the ball in the back of the net in twenty eleven. You just don't know what's going to change. I can't see Dublin winning the All Ireland next year. I have to say, I've said that already on on, on the on one of the programs. Who do you think is going to win next year? So I think Galway and Derry are definitely there. I think it's wide open. But I just feel that there was a Kerry eighty six vibe about this for me when Dublin. I just think there's nowhere else for these guys to go in terms of achievement. If Cluxton, Fitzsimons, McCarthy, unless they just want to keep on going back and do it again. 
again. But it's always not best to go out at the top because they just went out at the top completely went out of the top. Mannion McCaffrey came back. Kilkenny was there in the final. Desi Farrell's won two out of four now and deserves great credit for that. Pat Gilroy was back. It just felt like this was the last go. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a big thing in, in kind of, you know, sports psychology or, or, or you know, um, performance coaching, you know, they talk about what's your why, you know, and for Dublin in 2011, it was Dublin had not won an All-Ireland in 16 years. That group of players was responsible for delivering the All-Ireland for the GAA people of Dublin. The Jim Gavin team, it became very clear that they had an incredible bunch of players, um, a couple of generations of outstanding footballers, and it was about maximising what they had. And, and, and that resulted in them doing, you know, achieving unprecedented and historic things. This year was about, can we finish this off? You know, that's what it was about. The guys all coming together. That's that's what their why was. So after the game, like nobody could say for definite they weren't going to come back because that, like literally there was no tomorrow for that Dublin team. It was all about that All-Ireland. It was all about this year. Um, so I sense that when they come around to making plans for next year, there will be a few that can't find their why anymore. You know, the whys are all taken up. And carry a huge part of the why. Like last year, they broke Dublin in the semi-final. They're going for back-to-back. They are the most successful county in the history of game. And there's a huge why for Kerry now. There's a huge why for Kerry to re-establish that dominance in the game as they lead with 38 All-Irelands. There's a huge why for the Limerick Hurlers next year because five in a row has never been done. I think the, the why is it, it's a good jumping off point to introduce Michael Clifford's piece, The Nine Steps to Heaven, because the why is is laid out uh, very well here. And it's kind of something we were taught in journalism school, like multiple points of entry. So if you don't want to read one reason or if you've had enough, <laughs> go on to the next one. You read a paragraph. Right. I get this one. But the nine points are making James McCarthy captain. You can see how the players would rally and uh, and really push from the wedding feast. Obviously, James McCarthy's wedding. There's a nice line uh, to intro it. If uh, if the, his, if the story of Dublin's All-Ireland campaign was was ever committed to the big screen, not since the deer hunter would an opening wedding scene be more apt in setting the mood. While Michael Cimino c- captured the giddiness of a group of friends going to war, it turns out that James McCarthy's marriage to Clodagh O'Mahony last December managed something similar, albeit with a very different outcome. I think the story goes that Cluxton attended, did he? And it was, they brought together the old and the new, the, the experienced and the newcomers. And there was all these conversations uh, happening deep into the night with the Dublin players and they forged a plan and, and went with it I suppose next but the big thing there is I think James McCarthy is the only Dublin player that's been married in the last five or six years not to have Sam McGuire at the wedding so they, they, you know, they, they, yeah. there might have been some sort of talking point about that as well just um, I, I'm interested in your, your views on this Ireland Thinks poll which the uh, was in the kind of the news section of the uh, Sunday Independent like a lot of political opinions about Leo Varadkar and Marilyn McDonald and Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil Fianna Gael, all that kind of thing but when do you think the All-Ireland Hurling in the football final should be played 49% September 17% August 8% July 26% don't know and I've no interest like that's, that's a representation of the, the, the people of the country a lot of the mass appeal around the inter-county season and they feel they want a better tradition should they be listened to? Well uh, so what I would say about that is this. The, there is no doubt that the All-Ireland Finals are devalued and that a lot of the magic of the finals, and it is very much a magical magical event, the two of them, are gone by virtue of the timing. And because of the timing, you have this knock-on effect um, where, you know, the middle of July, people can't get hotels in Dublin. You know, the national consciousness isn't as focused because the kids aren't in school. People are away on holidays. Um, 
it's just not the same. So, yes, they are absolutely devalued. They were far better events, Irish cultural events as much as Irish sporting events. You know, like a lot of us who are that way inclined, you know, measure our lives in all Ireland finals. You know, you meet somebody from Donegal who's interested in football, somebody from Clare who's interested in hurling. You could name a year and the two you could yak away for an hour. There's something really, really nice about that. A lot of that has evaporated very, very quickly because of the timing of these games. So there's no doubt that it's devalued. But the argument against that is that you have to have it earlier in the year in order to provide a fair and equitable window for the clubs to play off, uh, which represents 99% of the people in the GAA. So anybody who advocates for one has to accept the kind of collateral damage to the other. Now, now there are other things to take, like the GA were very, you know, to make it look as equitable as possible, they effectively drew a line through the middle of the year. There's the club half, there's the county half, which is fine. But I know people who are over senior club teams at the moment who are starting their championships and and they've seven or eight players who are away on J1s or travelling. You know, whatever about getting used to the finals being in July, we haven't gotten used yet to the club championships starting some in some cases in July, in a lot of cases early August, because people still do the things that they always did at that time of year. So I'm still not sure that it's the best way to split it. Um, and, you know, people will get on and they get very angry and they say, well, if you if you're advocating for the inter-county championship, you know, swallowing the club championship, I'm not. But what I'm saying is there's no doubt that the finals are devalued by virtue of the timing. Just before we go to the break, why are the minor finals no longer being played at Croke Park before the All-Ireland Finals? Because if you've got a young lad uh, who may never make it in the game, to be able to tell their kids and grandkids that they played at Croke Park in a minor All-Ireland Final, uh, why is that being denied to them for the Clare and Derry Minors this year, for example? It was basically taken away because when they dropped it down to under 17, they felt that it was too young an age group to, you know, for, for the thing to be taken that seriously, basically. That was yeah. the underlying reason, that if you're playing in Croke Park on All-Ireland Final Day, not only is there huge scrutiny and pressure on the players involved, but there's, you know, the whole, you know, it's supposed to be a development age group. But if you, you know, under 17, players are still developing. But when you have the carrot of being All-Ireland minor champions in Crow Park, the sort of, you know, the win at all cost mentality comes into it um, and it does it a disservice. But like, again, that that's a very good and valid reason. But you, again, you can't take away from the sense there's, that it does There's got to be something away. because I, I like a pint, right? But I was just sitting around just drinking pints, bored on my tree, what, before the Kilkenny Limerick game because you couldn't go anywhere because of the rain and all you're drinking, just... Drinking pints and bored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, responsibly, obviously. Uh, we've got to take a break here. Kevin Byrne from the Irish Sun and Conor McKeown from the Irish Independent on the Sunday pay-per-view. If you want to get a question or a comment into the the lads here on your Sunday, um, please do on 53106 at cost of 30 cent. And we'll be talking about Vera Pau, Katie McCabe, the Camogie finals and the return of football after this. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for John Malloy until six. We're continuing the Sunday pay per view with the Chief Sub Editor and Irish Boxing Correspondent of the Sun, Kevin Byrne, and the Irish Independent GA writer, Connor McKeown. As well as listening on your radio across the country on News Talk here now, you can watch us in our live streams on YouTube and on Facebook. Claire won the Premier Junior Final in Camogie in football. Leicester 2 Coventry won a result as well from the Championship. We're going to talk about the Republic of Ireland women's team and the fallout from the World Cup now. We had the homecoming on O'Connell Street this week and it's been a very kind of strange end to uh, Vera Pau and uh, the team's uh, journey in Australia. Obviously, one draw, two defeats. 
thought we equipped ourselves well. First ever World Cup finals, played two teams ranked at the top 10 in the world. A few articles to go through. I'm just going to mention Paul Rowan's, which is actually in the news section of the Sunday Times. Uh, Paul Rowan, just a few quotes out of here. Um, how internal turf war soured Ireland's tournament dream after Vera Powell led the team to a historic first finals. Nothing seemed to go right, not least her relationship with captain Katie McCabe. Um, the Dutch woman was accused of improper conduct as a coach in her previous job at Houston Dash in Texas in 2018. This was in relation to charges of weight-shaming players. Powell is banned from coaching the National Women's Soccer League in the US as a result until she offers some contrition and goes on a re-education course, writes Paul Rohn. And Powell 60 has strongly protested her innocence at a number of Ireland press conferences and elsewhere. Last February, Powell said that she would be the storm when it came to clearing her name with lawyers in the US getting involved on her behalf. And in terms of the Nigeria game, when McKay went over to Powell and urged her to make a change, uh, she was heard shouting, I'm telling you, freshen it up. And uh, just not to expect as well any of the FEI's infamous non-disclosure agreements should Powell end up leaving these shores. Her contract has not been renewed or she hasn't been given a new one, as it were, for the upcoming Nations League and Euros campaign. It seems reading the tea leaves that she won't get one, whether that's fair or not. Uh, we do have a cloud over this whole... Uh, Republic of Ireland manager player situation a disconnected seems between the manager and the players what else are you reading Kevin today in terms of the Irish team yeah, there's a couple of good pieces on it in the sports sections alright John and um, you know Mark Gallagher who, who was over there in Australia with the team uh, has, a, has a two page spread with uh, once again multiple points of entry as I mentioned in a different piece but you know there's three things Pog, uh, Vera Pau got right three she could have done better the three best displays and then there's there's a large uh, two-page spread on just her Vera Powell's impact not being in doubt, but as the subhead says, it's time for change. And he goes into detail and to explain why he believes it is time for change. And it's an interesting story, this one, because I think like the plain people of Ireland would see Vera Powell as having done quite a good job, wouldn't they? And and there seems to be support out there for her. And maybe, maybe I've seen comments online, like in I think in a different piece, it's Colm O'Rourke telling people don't be listening to social media. But I, I was I was reading a bit myself this week, and you can see like there's there's great support out there for Vera Pau and a lot of anger at the media for the way it's being reported. And it's a curious media story this Vera Pau one because the first doubts about Vera Pau's future as Ireland manager emerged in the media. The, the way that we're now reading into doubts and there's a perception out there. I was at the homecoming on Thursday speaking to a few fellow fans and stuff and they were saying they believe that Vera Powell has lost the dressing room. It's quite clear from the way the, the story is being reported. And also that the I way the players are talking about it mm. and being so kind of And then I see that detached. being directed at the media as, oh, they're trying to get Vera or they're trying to get her out. But I gather from, from what I'm reading that the the noises from the dressing room are that, that the link is broken between manager and players. So then it becomes a story of people are angry at player power as well and is, is player power okay is, is it acceptable And it's, it's reality isn't it it's reality in modern football player power is significant and if if there is a, if there is a, a disruption in the relationship between captain and manager well then I suppose it's, it's up to the FAI to uh, to investigate what's going on I suppose we weren't expecting player power if we qualify for World Cup for the first ever time first ever major tournament not even a Euros qualification before we're not expecting this type of seriousness and this type of I suppose narrative to develop around the Republic of Ireland I read, I read a column online on the mirror from uh, Stewie Byrne the other day and he was just it's just the way he laid it out it was so kind of in your face but he, he said 
Ireland's, Ireland's whole preparation for the World Cup was clouded by off-field stories and reports into this and that from Powell's time in America. He says, again, I don't know the ins and outs of that either, but it doesn't change the fact that there was way too much of Vera Powell before the tournament and it did nothing for the team. And it seems that this, you know, we've been talking about this. The noise. The noise for ages. And uh, Ireland's preparation for the World Cup wasn't perfect. The the. Pr- the results at the World Cup weren't perfect, and I guess they weren't the FAI either. have an out now that they don't ha- that she doesn't have a contract, so she they don't have to fire her. They just don't have. But to there's renew. a degree of be careful what you wish for because Eamon Sweeney. There was a really really good thing in his in his piece in the back of the Sunday in the very good today. piece, like just yeah. like just talking about the fact that there's little evidence in support of the Golden Generation thesis. Such spells have occurred in the past. In 2010, an under 17 side, including Denise Sullivan, finished runners up at the European Championship, made the World Cup quarterfinals. The 2014 under 19 team with Connolly on board reached the Euro semi-finals but the under 19s have not qualified since and through the under 17s though they made the finals in 15 and 17 they failed to win a game nothing suggests that we possess better young talent than our peers yeah I just just to go back to Kevin's point about you know and I've seen this too that people are kind of accusing the media of wanting to get rid of Vera Powell you know if you follow that train of thought logically like the media the Irish media covering the Irish women's football team they don't have any skin in the game when it comes to the manager it's not as if you know there's some budding Irish coach that they that they all know really well and they go for points with and and they're 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 mad to get them into the job and they see Pau staying on there as being uh, an inhibitant there you you could I could understand why you'd interpret from some of the pieces because you had pieces where players were at a World Cup and they were being questioned about whether they'd support Vera Powell staying on as manager. Um, but in my experience, what journalists try to do in that situation is they're asking questions so they can try and portray what they believe to be a story. And again, without talking to any of the journalists, but just from reading the coverage of the World Cup, it would strike me that the people who were over there, and Mark Gallagher is a great example this morning in the Mail on Sunday, that the media picked up the vibe very strongly from the camp Um that the support for Vera Powell to continue in the role is practically non-existent. Um, and that's really, that's what's driving this. Now, how that is linked to the, you know, the story in America and, and how much it, it shrouded the build-up, I don't know. Um, it would be a strange thing, in my experience, uh, for players to turn against the manager who did good work with them, who, who they had a good relationship, who, who they thought were going to have success based on something that happened in the past. Um, so it would be interesting to see how this one plays out. But is it the case here that the players want to pick the manager? Hmm, I don't I don't know. Maybe they're and, and maybe they're as annoyed at the noise as, as everyone else seems to be, as as people seem to be. And or maybe the people of Ireland don't really it, care about the it, outside I suppose noise. If, if Vera Powell doesn't get continue in the Irish job, is it now all on the players in terms of whether they qualify? Is it all put on them? I think the players have done quite well as well to perform and to get get themselves to the World Cup. I don't think anyone's trying to suggest it's a golden generation. But if there is a breakdown in the relationship with the manager and her players, and we don't know because this hasn't been directly said. It's, yeah, we it's don't, hinted at, and definitely, it, I could like pull because they've been very quiet or like, like they haven't said anything yeah. uh, of the last few weeks, and uh, whether that's tactical or not, I don't know. They could pull a rabbit out of the hat and say Powell's got a new deal, but it's very unlikely, it seems. Yeah. And, and like Connor was saying, like the, the players have come out to bat for Stephen Kenny under under the Ireland men's very, team, very strongly. They? What do you think All of the manager? Yeah, he is the yeah, right man yeah, for the yeah, job yeah, to carry, and yeah. the results have been far yeah. worse for the men's team. And that also calms and. And kind of almost suppresses the criticism of Stephen yeah, Kenny. The, the players, the, the Ireland fem- women's players have been asked directly, do you think Vera Powell is the and right they, woman to they, bring they, us into the next? They've given better answers than you would in Dáil Éireann. 
<laughs> it's it's good. So and I think one of the journalists today suggested it's almost like a pact. The players have said we won't. We will. You know answer what? The whole thing way. is just sad. I think it's sad. The whole. The, the well, whole. I would like I, you know, from if you take it at a very very basic sort of touchstone level, like qualifying the team for a first World Cup, that's major credit in the bank. I also think, and maybe this has no relevance at all, but the the, the controversy that brought the team to kind of national front pages over the Celtic Symphony in the dressing room I thought she handled that with incredible like I thought she was brilliant in all of that she was incredibly sensitive around it she showed brilliant duty of care to the players that were involved while at the same time you know displaying contrition you know without kind of just bending the knee I thought she was brilliant around that um, and, and to me that kind of enhanced the reputation of Vera Powell because that's a very difficult situation to manage on the fly. Um, you know, that, that's mentioned as one of the three uh, positive things yeah. from one of the three things that Vera got right by Mark Gallagher in the Mail on Sunday. He says Powell seemed untouchable the day after that contentious sing song in the Hamden dressing room and the even handed, thoughtful manner in which she addressed the controversy and diffused the situation only heightened public affection for the Dutch woman, who, like, let's not forget as well, has been very open about her history of, you know, sexual abuse and stuff like that as well. And it's, you know, brought her a place in the nation's hearts, I'd suggest, you know. And But um, another thing, I found I found this quite interesting in, uh, in Mark's piece. Uh, three things she could have done better. And he, he mentioned substitutions, obviously, which led to the little uh, melee with Katie McCabe, squad selection and parachuting in players. Um, that's... That kind of, that's you could discuss that for an entire show, I'd say. But then the last one is interesting. Keep Stum. He says Paul Paul wouldn't yes. make the best poker player. Uh, while most managers make an art form out of giving nothing away, Pow often replied to anything she was asked, often not to the betterment of the situation, such as needlessly naming Sinead Farley when discussing her spat with McCabe, consistently saying her contract position was clear, also didn't sit well with the players. I just find it funny that we want brute honesty from do managers Irish and pe- players. Do, do Irish people like direct? No. <laughs> No, no. We want. We say we want it, and we do want it. But then sometimes when, yeah, and like we don't like it when someone seems to be pulling the wool over our eyes as well. Because I think a few weeks ago, like when John Kiley said, "I wouldn't ask my goalkeeper about his uh, yeah. his medical situation. That's not for me to ask." And you're like, "But he's he's your starting goalkeeper. Surely you want to know the condition of his eyes." Yeah. So we we don't want that sort of stuff. But at the same, but then when the manager comes out and just doesn't show any political nows at all has, and, just, uh, and just throws it straight Powell down the line. Is probably in some way, maybe not fully, but some way paying for no filter. Like it's pure no filter. It's great for the media and everything. And if you're, it's just complete honesty in, in terms of what's said. Uh, but maybe but that's not the most diplomatic. And, and we can see how we can see the results when then the captain is putting out zipped fa- zipped mouth emojis the yeah, minute the World yeah. Cup campaign is over. But that has to hint at something else. Like, that can't just be over one row on the sideline in the 70th minute of a World Cup match. Uh, dead rubber, you know. There has to be, there, there surely is more. But then again, I'm just guessing. I'm just another... Yeah. We're, we're, we're all, we're all in, the, in the dark and it will all come out. And after three o'clock, we'll talk about Camogie, this uh, senior final, some really good writing today in it and also rugby as well. But uh, just to bring us to the break, uh, just to, to actually link that, uh, leader in waiting, Declan Rice uh, in the Sunday Times, Arsenal signing the former West Ham captain intended to give them the beating heart missing since the days of Vieira. Talking about his rejection from Chelsea and his uh, vocal nature in the dressing room and uh, about his uh, former uh, club academy director, West Ham, Terry Wesley, saying that we've got a process called clean feedback, but you wouldn't, couldn't have it with a lot of young players. 
and their parents because they couldn't take it. They wanted a fluffy, Wesley says, of the meetings where academy players' weaknesses were relayed to them in clear terms. Declan says he couldn't have done it any other way. He needed the clean feedback so he could take ownership of it and address it. That's a rare thing and that desire to get better rubs off on everybody in the group and can take them to the next level. Maybe Vera Pa was an advocate of the clean feedback. Well, I think that's. I think the Declan Rice signing so far is the most interesting signing of the, all the Premier League clubs. Um, I watched a lot of Arsenal last year, and I think a, a lot of people connected their their fading out in the title race to the injury to William Saliba, and and that was definitely true. But also, I think it was very much tied to the 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 loss of form, which I think was probably connected to an injury of Thomas Partey at the base of the midfield. Like he he's a very very underrated player in that position. He processes a lot of ball that in a very um, pressurised situation and puts Arsenal on the front foot again. And when you spend £105 million on a player for that position, uh, which Arsenal have done, I think that's that emphasises what an important um, role that is in the Arsenal team. And that's where Rice is going to come and where he's going to build, um, you would imagine, over the next few years. But it'll be an interesting... You know, I think a lot of us have taken interest in Declan Rice since he almost played for Ireland, you know, and you look at the two, times, the two yeah. biggest... Uh, the two biggest British transfer fees now yeah. are for Jack Grealish and Declan Rice yeah. and you do wonder what would happen had they played for Ireland whether they'd still be at you know Aston Villa and West Ham or whether they've would they have commanded anywhere near the same uh, transfer price because obviously you're you're not just Arsenal aren't just paying 105 million pounds for a pivot in midfield they're, they're paying 105 million pounds for you know a cast iron England certainty at the base of midfield and I'm, I'm not sure that that the price tag is quite as as high for the you know the cast iron certainly at the base of the Ireland midfield, but um, no, no, I just think he's a really interesting sign. And, and I, I, I watched last year's uh, conference league final, the the you the thing the West Ham won, and he spoke so well after it as well. Um, and it made me kind of I think pine from him in Ireland short a little bit more uh, We will talk about Manchester United and uh, their visit to Dublin there's a lot of writing about that in the papers the Camogie senior final some really good writing on that and also rugby about the World Cup prep and uh, David Walsh and the All Blacks and also the Basque country and the influence on uh, Basque coaches in uh, in football as well so plenty to talk about on the paper review between three and half three with Conor McKeown of the Irish Independent and Kevin Byrne of the Irish Sun if you want to ask a question or make an observation or give an opinion you can on 5-3-106 Clare have won the Premier Junior Camogie final and it's Leicester 2 Coventry won a result from the championship at the moment Leeds back in the championship are trailing Cardiff by one goal to nil John Duggan here with you sitting in for John Malloy today and we're back after the news And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for John Malloy until six. We're continuing the Sunday paper review with the chief sub editor and Irish boxing correspondent of the Sun, Kevin Byrne, and the Irish Independent GA writer Connor McKeown, as well as listening on News Talk now across the country. You can also watch us if you like on the live streams for digital, on social, on YouTube, and Facebook. Just the Manchester City team is in for the Community Shield. Four o'clock kickoff against Arsenal at Wembley. Ortega, Walker, Stones, Diaz, Akanji, Rodri, Kovacic. Silva, Grealish, Alvarez and Haaland. So quite a strong Manchester City team. We're just waiting for the Arsenal team to come in and we will bring it to you as soon as we can. And obviously as well, we've got Camogie today. Uh, Meath 1-1, Derry 3 points in the intermediate final. 15 minutes on the watch at Croke Park. Earlier, Clare beat Tabrary by 3-7 to 1-9 in the Premier Junior Decider. And we have Cork and Waterford throwing in at 5 o'clock. It's a good segue to the writing about the Camogie final. Really good stuff. Derek Rohur has been really the leading writer on Camogie in the, the last few years and a great piece today on Brianna O'Regan uh, 
the Waterford goalkeeper. And I'll just kind of read this out and not much I can add to it, but O'Regan spoken openly about the death of her parents, Brian and Johanna, and 21-month-old sister Neve, in a fire in her home in Ballybag. She escaped along with her brothers, Keen and Aaron. Grandparents, Patrick and Joan, Brian's parents, took the trio in, and along with Karen, their aunt, and the community support, they've thrived. Brian was a Mount Sion man through originally hurling with Rowan Moore. He loved greyhounds. Brianna started at Mount Sion but had to move to Dallas Al to play camogie. She and her granddad got into greyhounds in a big way. It was something they all did together, a way to remember Brian. Camogie kind of saved my life, she told me three years ago, telling Derek or her and having the greyhounds as well. You kept on kind of pottering around with them. I had and still have great people around me. In another conversation last year, she emphasised the importance of not bottling up pain in an era when mental health concerns among young people have never been greater. The younger generation now, they don't want to talk, they find it embarrassing, but I don't really think it is, she said last year. If you need help, even if you have a friend to talk to, you have to. Otherwise, you're going to be down in the dumps and you're going to be taking your anger out on people that you don't mean to. So she talks about her family and how today's All-Ireland Final will be testing in a way far beyond anything might throw at her this evening. So really good article with uh, Dara Gohor and uh, Brian O'Regan there in the Sunday Independent and look all he can do is wish her the best today I don't think I can add anything to that there's also writing um, in the other papers as well and in the Sunday Independent on the Cork um, Camogie set up ahead of today Yeah just on the Brianna Regan piece um, you know when she talks about not kind of you know bottling up things that had happened to you like I, I think she was seven when that fire happened you know and I'm not sure how anybody would be expected to process that um, but the, the jumping off point of the the interview or the piece that Daryl Cover does about Brian O'Regan is talking about the the final free of the semi final um, yes. when she came up, and I think it was Paul Flynn who is a selector or a coach with the with the Waterford hurlers, one of the great free takers in, in hurling history, came up and beckoned her to to take the the free, and she stuck it over the bar, and she turned around and she and she kind of pointed, and it looked like a kind of a you know an almost a a, a gloating point. Um, but the point was that she was kind of pointing up to the heavens and and, yes, and, yeah. and her, her parents and her sister, who was an infant at the time of the fire, uh, 21-year-old sister Neve, they were the people that she was saluting. Um, and I would challenge any neutral today that watching that Camogie final not to shout for Brianna O'Regan and for Waterford more generally. And just to, to maybe expand the point about the Camogie final, because it's a big day for Camogie, um, this is the first time since 2012 that one that so since 2012 Kilkenny, Galway and Cork have been in every final and nobody else has been in a final and I think this is the first time since 2014 like every league final since 2014 um, has been between two of Cork, Galway and Kilkenny and so that's the last 20 national finals and I think you know, at a time when women's football at inter-county level has undergone an absolute surge in popularity, a huge surge in popularity, which was which was evidenced in the annual breaking the attendance records. And then you had this great Dublin team and then Mead came from effectively nowhere and, and changed the game. And we've gotten to know a lot of those players. Um, Camogie hasn't had the same surge in kind of floating voter interest, if you want to put it like that. And part of it, I just think, is fatigue. You know, it, it's which two of Galway, Cork and Kilkenny are going to be in the final. So, you know, yeah, this is 
this is Waterford's first final since 1945 yeah. but I think on a more general point it's the first time a county other than Galway, Cork and Kilkenny have been in it since 2012 so um, for that reason I think it, it feels a bit like a breath of fresh air going into the week it does, and, yeah. and it just gives you more and more angles I think from which to come at the It game. reminds me of the Mees ladies footballers in a way the way they came out of intermediate and, and then beat Dublin and won two in a row and had strong personalities in their team and whether Waterford do it or today or not and I'd echo your sentiments about Brianna O'Regan. It's, it's yeah. been a difficult journey for her. In the her. previous page in the Sunday Independent, Aoife Sheehan is writing, and yeah. towards the end of her piece, she says, Camogie needs this oxygen. In a year filled with, a, with frustrating off-field events such as UL's elimination from the Ashburn Cup just days before the competition, the scheduling of, uh, of the cancelled All-Star trip a couple of weeks before Championship, and the dual fixture clashes, which is alluded to also in a piece with... Um, with the Callahan sisters, uh, the Camogie Associ- Association must be satisfied that Waterford have made it to the final. This gives the game a welcome boost. And something else that gives the game a welcome boost is probably the writing of journalists like Daryl Cahur. I'd love to hear his word count at the end of this season for ladies football and Camogie. He must be pushing a million words on this. Like he's he's put out some great stories. It's a great but, service as well yeah. because it's it. it you, anybody can just uh, maybe just oh well Cork are playing water for today these are the, this is the build up these are the mm-hmm. facts yeah this, this is 1945 Cork haven't won in five years but he goes in he digs deep and he gets the stories and it's all about the people it's it, all about it's, the well, people uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know uh, every sports person every person has a backstory and, and most most people walking around don't get the opportunity to tell their backstory in national media or whatever but sports people do and that's probably been for me working in media the biggest breath of fresh air since you know, the 20 for 20 campaign and the, the emergence of women's sports as a, as a feature in the national media. You're getting to hear the backstories of far more sports people from different backgrounds and stuff like it's it, it gets a bit, you know, in GAA, the footballer and the footballers in rugby, there's a lot of similar backstories. They don't really share as much, but the female stars have, have been doing so. And, and like, look, there's no backstory more heartbreaking than Brianna O'Regan's. It's nearly upsetting to read, like, but, you know, you can, o- you can only wish her well. And, you know, she... She's a like a bit of a prodigy herself in in goals for Waterford since the age of sixteen, you know, and uh, they're they're up against it today. But but um, I'm sure the neutrals will be shouting for no Waterford. no. We all we all understand. We wish Brianna and, and everybody Waterford well. Uh, Cork, from their perspective, will be looking to win. And the Callan, it's a good piece in the Sunday Independent. Um, just in the inside of how much it means. Remember Niall Callan, the late 80s, was a teak-tough uh, Cork defender. Uh, won a couple of All-Irelands. Uh, Maeve and Orla, his daughter's playing for Cork today. Just it was a really good insight in the piece into how devastating it can be to lose, as Cork have the last couple of years. And just the bonds that they have, that they they don't like being out of the unit because it comes such a family. It could be like the Dubs, you know what I mean? They've lost two in a row now to, at the semi-final stage, I think. Well, they've beaten Kilkenny and Galway to get here today. Yeah. So to, to do that is difficult in itself. Yeah, I think nobody nobody has a huge amount of sympathy for the Goliath and the David and Goliath pairing off and that's probably the, the form that the Cork assume just because they are one of the big three and you know they, they knocked out the other two to get to the final but I was at the league final this year and they were they were absolutely heartbroken afterwards I think that was five national finals they'd lost on the trot um, so you know while well it's I think most people who show for Waterford I think there's a lot on the line here for Cork as well you know eventually eventually um, you know all that kind of heartache and heartbreak tends to sort of I think you know Today is a big day for them too. There's an article you you referenced uh, in, in the break there in the Irish Daily Mail 
Philip Lanigan and Hilda Breslin. She is the Camogie boss and she's the great-granddaughter of Jim Larkin, the man of the 1913 lockout. Yeah. I this is So, first of all, it's a really good uh, interview that Philip has done with Hilda Breslin. Um, I feel that maybe the the Hilda Breslins of this world don't maybe speak often enough in this kind of uh, scenario. Um, I mean... <laughs> There is a certain irony that she's a great granddaughter of James Larkin in a season when, you know, Camogie players <laughs> were on strike um, over their their treatment. But they address that in this. This is you can link this very closely to Aoife Sheen's pieces today in the Sunday Independent because Aoife quite rightly makes the point that it has been a tough year for the Camogie Association. I was in here with you, I think, um, um, and Sarah O'Donovan after the after the issue. It's around the All Stars, isn't it? No, it's around the UL. Yes, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, UL, it was a disgrace what happened to them in the in the Ashbourne Cup. They 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 asked what scoring difference they needed to overcome. They achieved that scoring difference, and then they were told retrospectively that they were given the wrong, and they were thrown out. I know that they did not get any satisfaction whatsoever from the Camogie Association. Then they organised an All Stars tour the week before the start of the Munster uh, Munster Camogie Championship, um, which the Cork players said they wouldn't go on, and then they ended up having to cancel the entire tour to Canada. Um, and then you obviously have the situation with players who've been on strike. Now that's across ladies football and Camogie as well, um, but it has been a difficult situation. It's good that Hilda Breslin kind of addresses all of this and she makes a really good point here in the interview with Philip Lanigan. Um, and she says it's, it's kind of it's easy enough for people to call for equality um, because I don't think, you know, any of us here or, you know, people involved in the GAA in the men's games will say argue against equality. But will they be willing to accept that the money that the GAA generates um, that more of it is being funneled away from the men's games and that the facilities, because effectively, you know, this is the problem. You know, who are the players who are protesting, protesting to? Are they protesting to their own associations who are maxing out on their own revenue streams and, and don't really, or are they protesting to the GAA? And if they're protesting to the GAA, well, clearly there's some sort of fundamental change. Yeah, they're they're probably the protesting to Ireland, Inc., well, that's true, but and Ireland Inc. Is, uh, is funds the GA. Well, Hildebrandsen makes this point: um, the male player is funded by a GA that has a turnover somewhere in the region of sixty million. We have a turnover somewhere in the region of three million, as has ladies football. So that's what that's why ladies football and camogie. Um, that's why they don't have the same level of care and player welfare because effectively they can't afford it. And they're independent bodies. And they're independent under the bodies. And, the and this is where where it all comes back to it. Um, you know, John Kiley came out at his pre All Ireland final press conference in support of um, in support of Camogie players and and ladies footballers. But again, you know, Hilda Breslin was making the point. Well, you know would he be as supportive if it meant that they couldn't train in the Gaelic grounds on a Tuesday night because the Camogie players because that's effectively how the inter-county Camogie uh, and ladies football operate they get the scraps you know and, and obviously if you have a more equal situation that won't be the equation um, oh yeah sorry here's the quote from Hilda Breslin is John Kiley going to say I don't need to train in Limerick I can train somewhere else because the LGFA or the Camogie Association needs to be in these pitches um, so you know, it's it's a bit of an administrative nightmare, basically, because what you have is 
the men's association, the GAA, have the access and the running of all the facilities. And then what you have is independent uh, associations which govern the women's games, women's football and camogie, who basically have to live off scraps. That is inherently unequal. Like, you know, that is inequality personified. But until they all take the big step um, of coming under the one umbrella, you know, that sort of thing is inevitable. Well, is it's, it's hypothetical about John Kiley because you can ask the question of any male manager. No, but I think to. I think the only reason that John Kiley is brought up there is because he he kind of said it himself at the pre All Ireland press yeah, conference. But, but, there is a sense he's of not going to say anything else. There is a sense of calling out people who express support online or in their words, but now she wants to see it in their deeds because she mentions earlier in the piece how um, you know the. The 2020 campaign pricked people's consciences, uh, consciences a bit. There's a lot of lip service that goes on about supporting girls, supporting women. You know the idea that I support my f- whole family the same. I treat my girls the same, but I actually attend my boys' matches and I don't attend my girls' matches. Uh, it doesn't matter what you tweet or it doesn't matter what you post. If you're not sitting in the stands, you're not supporting women's sport. That's the reality. Six counties in the Camogie final today will attract about 30,000 fans with Crow Park as a... Uh, and she says later on, we can all explain why that can't happen. I can tell you that if I don't have 80,000 in Crow Park on Sunday, I don't have the revenue to support a female player the same way as the GAA have the revenue to support a male player. And that's the reality. So there's a bit of a call. There's a bit of a confrontational approach as well, which, uh, you know, no harm. Well, I think that anybody who's got a profile in the men's game that comes out in support of equity and equality is is doing a good thing and then it's up to the Mary McAleese's the Tom Ryan's and these kind of people the Hilda Bresens to get their heads together and sort it out and get a, get merged and she says she hopes it'll happen in 2026 so but this uh, when I just read this article there's only one word that came out of this is the real politic uh, of money it's all about money yeah that, that's essentially it and you know and power and facilities and, and all of those things that's that's what kind of goes into the what goes into the pot because like but like you're talking about taking three associations and making it into one and the level of intricacy that's going to go into that is is crazy but you also have a a situation where you know Sport Ireland fund uh, all the major associations and they all by a certain date I think it's next year have to have a particular percentage of representation that are female on their highest board whatever that is um, and obviously in the GAA they, they don't have that kind of representation because a lot of the um, high ranking or whatever female administrators are on the Camogie Association the Women's Football Association so it's a bit of a mess that way like it's, it's in everyone's benefits to get to the end game but it's just it's so complicated to They've get they've got to get it right as well just as someone who I follow like boxing and particularly amateur boxing and you know they brought in equity and equality in, in, in Olympic boxing but it's come, at a, it's come at a huge cost like the, basically they've cut the number of men's divisions so what the Olympics did is they said we're not going to reduce the number of, we're not going to increase the number of athletes who go to the boxing tournament we're just going to reduce the number of men and add in the number of women which is you know increased year on year or tournament on tournament as a result for men it's more difficult now than ever to qualify for the Olympics in fewer weight categories and what happens then is the governments only fund those weight categories so a load of boxers that are just left out in the cold their kind of careers and hopes of being an Olympic boxer are over effectively unless they can maybe put on five kilos or cut five kilos to fit into a weight category that doesn't really suit them it's it's a different scenario to the GA but I'm just saying it was an imperfect scenario instead of trying to grow the sport for equality they, what they did was they mashed it all in together and they didn't get it right in my opinion it's led to a lot of recrimination and it's possibly you know one of the foundational stones of the breakaway groups that are all happening now governments and associations are very unhappy with the way the Olympics 
in their perception have ruined the sport and now they're, they're rebelling against that so there's there's such a knock-on effect if you don't get it right. Mm. So I can even say, say for just this is a very casual example in the GAA. A lot of the GAA's revenue, or a big proportion of uh, the GAA's revenue over the next few years, will be committed to major infrastructure projects in Casement Park, in uh, Park, Park Talton in Loud, and in St Conlas Park in Newbridge. That's the sort of expense that you know, like if, if you take the figures the Hill that Breslin presents there, that the GAA's turnover is sixty million, the Camogies Association turnover is three million. So now all of a sudden it's 63 million and you have twice as many people that you have to govern well somewhere along the line you're going to lose well, it well if this happens in 2026 and if it does happen I think everybody's going to need to see what it looks like before it happens so there's no surprises but it's a three years away at least our Arsenal team is in for the Community Shield Ramsdale White Saliba Gabriel Timber uh, Partey Rice Odegaard Saka Martinelli and Havertz so Havertz Rice and Timber all starting today at Wembley against Manchester City uh, Manchester United by the way at 4 o'clock are off in Dublin against Athletic Bilbao a set out um, you were Kevin Byrne kind of remarking on the articles on, in the business post about this and the yeah let me just dig it out here John yeah a sell out a sell out is a good way of putting it alright there's um, there's a let me just dig it out here now I have it for you here. I'd be a Man United fan myself, but I wouldn't dream of going to this fixture. Why not? Because um, of the ticket not, prices? It's not authentic. Is it, you know, if I'm attending a football match in Ireland, I'd rather attend a League of Ireland match. That's just personal. Uh, what happens if you're living in Dublin and, like, I know the tickets are expensive today. I don't know if they're all 110 euro. I know the, the gentleman says here, James McDermott in the Business Post. But yeah, if premium <laughs> level. But if you're but if you're living in Dublin, want to bring your your kids down to the Aviva to watch Man United? What's what's the harm in that? No harm, really. It's just you know looking at the value for money you're going to get. What's what sort of a team are United going to select today against Athletic? Uh, they played Lawns yesterday. You know, what I mean, with more or less a full strength team. You'd imagine a lot of those will will not play. Maybe won't travel. I, I haven't seen the team yet, but. I went before to one of those. Uh, it's the Sampdoria one, was it? Uh, it was the League of Ireland selection, 2010. Yeah. The opening fixture. Well, what, of the uh, State maybe better if it's the League of Ireland selection today, to be honest. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But I, was, I was, and actually, there's a great piece on Athletic by Neil O'Riordan in the Irish Sun, which I want to get to in a minute. But yeah, it was just an extremely costly enterprise. United played a second string side, and at least I suppose, as is uh, mentioned in this piece in the Sunday Business Post, there was an Irish link, which is the whole, whole kind of cover for the piece. Irish love affair with Man United has become an unrequited one, just because of the pr- no presence of an Irish player in the squad. Uh, but you know, in 2010, the inaugural soccer match at the rebuilt Lansdowne saw League of Ireland selection lose seven one to a Red Devils team that included both John O'Shea and Darren Gibson. Yeah, uh, you know, which I barely remember. But the, well, it's holding up the, the 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 hold that Manchester United has on Irish fans is obviously holding up if this is selling out in minutes. And and uh, James McDermott pointing out in the Business Post that the there are tickets still on sale for the Netherlands game in the in the autumn. Stephen Kenny's team. And we've seen it in recent years, like you know, Liverpool could Liverpool. I think a few years ago picked it a reserve reserve team and they still sold out I think they played UCD reserves because they were in action as well and it, it sells out you know the English team's coming to Dublin in the summer to go anywhere out, but as it's, well. like it's an afterthought in coming to the Irish tour now these days isn't it it's, there's more money to I be suppose made what, elsewhere what, where is the grab from is it from Match of the Day the BBC is it from English culture is it from Roy Keane Dennis Irwin George Best Johnny Giles Frank Stapleton Kevin Moran because it has stuck and then it's the dad's generation and it's the son's generation yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the next generation are going to be Manchester United fans. Maybe they mightn't be reared on it as much, but that's United. Like the piece above it is is kind of maybe a little bit more enlightening. 
United's 900 million Adidas deal highlights club in clubs enduring appeal globally. This is one of the biggest, you know, biggest shirt deals ever signed. Uh, but United have had very little success in the last decade. So they're an enduring brand and it kind of goes into why Adidas uh, feel they need a new totem and because Kanye West, you know, going off the deep end a little bit. He, he was their last, he was their, their Michael Jordan. So now they need a new one. So they're going with Man United. So United still have that worldwide appeal and they've spread it into the Far East and America. The appeal, the link is still there with, with Ireland for sure. There's, there's Man United fans all over the country, but just for me personally, the idea of going to see a second Would stream. you go over now to yeah. the UK to watch Occasionally, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know an Arsenal supporter from Dublin who, who was texting me he was going to see Arsenal in the SoFi Stadium, like the biggest stadium in, in, in the NFL with the wraparound screen. And I think it was costing him $120 or something like that. And he said, well, when, when's the next time I could see Arsenal play our hated rivals, MLS All-Stars? <laughs> you know? But like that's, you know, you're talking about the West Coast of America and, you know, Arsenal, when it comes to global appeal in the Hapenley place compared to Manchester United. And um, this, maybe to link it into a piece that Dan McDonald has in the Sunday Indo yes, today. On about Saudi Arabia. About Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, the largesse of the Premier League was nearly its kind of strength. And, and, and it's quite funny to watch the dynamic now where it's very financial largesse um, is no longer its strength because, you know, the money that Saudi Arabia are throwing at, at players and managers and kind of uh, Premier League institutions is obviously high enough to get them over there. Um, but the one thing that they're never going to do um, for whatever reason over the past 10, 20, 30 years whatever way the Premier League has marketed itself whatever the way it has grown its brand as a league not to mention how those big clubs have grown their brand globally um, they have kind of taken over in that sense you know like it is the Global League Yeah, well, like we the European Super League was destined to fail because the Global League is the Premier League yeah like we could all there's huge growth in the States now ahead of it we'll go on any of us can go on holiday any part of the world tomorrow and we'll see the same Manchester United shorts and the Arsenal shorts as well as like Real Madrid and Barcelona but there's at least five or six Premier League teams that are in that kind of global appeal category now um, but Dan's piece is interesting in so far as he makes the point that there, like there's a there's a bit of the the shouting Friday I think for, for people who aren't that big in the Premier League um, that you know they can no longer use the fact that they're the only place that players of a certain um, wage bracket can go now to make a living um, because Saudi Arabia seems to be snapping up uh, any sort of talent it'll be interesting to see what happens to the Saudi Arabian project because you know this has been tried in China it's been it's been tried in America you know a, a, a country throwing loads of money at, at players to bring them over but the sheer scale of it now is such that it's hard to ignore there's so many uh, little lines in, in Dan's piece that are that are worth picking out and I've, I've picked out loads I'll just mention one of them he says one contact in the fo- in a in a football in the football agency game says the reality is somewhat different. This is from the Saudi clubs and it's circling around the, the finest of British football talent. Tales of Jordan Henderson earning seven hundred thousand pounds per week. I've got players on the phone to representatives and potential intermediaries to explore what the Middle East might hold for them. There aren't enough Saudi clubs to meet the demand. They are knocking back more than they are recruiting. It's a greedy, grubby business. So it's it's gas to think of seven hundred grand a week. Journeymen footballers in England, you well, know, banging down the door. Get me over there. Unfortunately, on News Talk, we're not on seven hundred grand a week. <laughs> uh, boys from the Basque stuff in the uh, Sunday Times, lovely piece on uh, all these pl- people in football management from the same area of kind of San Sebastian, Bilbao, Northern Spain. I didn't, I, I didn't know that Arteta and Alonso were from the same area. And Nuno Emery as well, and um, Gipuzkoa. Yeah, and there's a picture of uh, Alonso and Arteta as young lads, like teenagers. What a, a centre midfield that would have been. 
But it's not the best picture of the day. The best picture of the day, as I said, in the Sunday World. Folks, check it out. Stephen Cluxton and Michael Fitzsimons in anguish as the Gooch puts the ball in the back of the net in 2011. Uh, this piece, though, is very interesting insofar as like, it makes the point that four of the 20 Premier League managers are all from um, an area with a population of under 200,000, um, uh, stretching less than 40 kilometres. Um, or Cork, basically. Or Cork, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's a really interesting piece because it kind of explores, you know, like I, I find that kind of thing fascinating. What, like what are the what are the conditions in a certain part of Ireland that make lots of really good hurlers or what are the conditions, you know, in certain parts of Cuba that make really good boxers or whatever it is, you know. Um, and this seems to be and, and this is the really interesting thing about Athletic Bilbao is that, you know, Athletic Bilbao in the last 10 years, I think they finished in the top half of La Liga eight times. They were they finished fourth in 2014, 2015, maybe and made the Champions League. But they do so using only Basque players. And that's incredible. Like, I mean, that's, you know, that's GAA level stuff. You know, that's that's really, really amazing. And I didn't realise that Real Sociedad um employed the same policy until quite recently. So you've got two teams in La Liga. So they're basically dipping into the same small pool of players. Um, but it makes the point that the reason so many are... It, it, it's Tom Allnott who writes it today in the Sunday Times, but he kind of puts forward the theory that because they have so few people there, a lot of players are encouraged to get involved in coaching at an early age because effectively they need them. Um, and they obviously get opportunities then at these uh, La Liga clubs. But it's probably not a very popular image, you know, the idea of a, you know, a, an elite level footballer having this kind of sense of duty to 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 the place and to the club that 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 um, brought them through the ranks. Juxtaposed with the uh, Saudi Arabia article that you referenced in Dan McDonald, just a couple of things before we finish up there. Boxing, obviously, your boxing correspondent of the Sun, Kevin Byrne. Katie Taylor's fighting Chantal Cameron again in November, is it? Yes. November the 25th, back yeah. at the Three Arena, yeah. Why is Katie doing this? It seemed from the fight in May that Chantal Cameron, at a, at a higher weight, as it were, was stronger and uh, bigger. And it was the clear winner. Does Katie have her pride? Does, it, uh, does she believe that she can turn this around and, and, and upset the, the I would mass? say she's the most single-minded Irish athlete there's ever been, probably. She refuses to take a loss you know she she will probably she'll take the last loss on the chin but she'll refuse to believe that there's no way she can turn it around um, we haven't really heard from Taylor's side why they've taken it and the hope I suppose for casual fans for fans would have been that okay maybe get back down to your natural weight of of lightweight you know forced camera now to lose a bit of weight to come into your backyard and have her feeling the, the strain of the weight the weight cut and that would make Cameron the challenger for Taylor's belts but it's probably just Taylor saying no exact same conditions I lost I'll win and uh, I'll give her some of the she same shot that she gave me Taylor always has a shot at winning I wouldn't I mean I wouldn't put my house on it for sure but um, I thought Cameron would win the fight until kind of fight week last time and then Taylor's demeanour during fight week kind of convinced me that she was so comfortable uh, and she's such a big game player or whatever way you want to put it that her demeanour all week convinced me that she'd get the job done and I became more and more convinced as, a, as a, the week went on um, could end up going the same way again Like um, Yeah, it's the three arena again all this populous hot air but Croc Park's finished now is it? 
it's done I'd say yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah. especially had she won had she won the fight with Cameron the hype might have gone up a bit a lot of the some boxing promoters I know there's a guy from Cork Gary Hyde says it's better to have a thousand people outside and only 500 people in the arena because then you create the one for the next for the next one and the, the three arena against Cameron the first time would have done that 9,000 people in or 8,000 people in but another 80,000 people would like to go and maybe wouldn't have bought tickets but would like to go that when a fighter takes a loss that hype always you know erodes dissipates a little bit so t- Taylor's got a massive job in her hands um, and Cameron is going to come back and she'll have learned from the fight as well uh, interesting comments from Katie's father Pete she said she didn't box well enough at all she didn't use her feet she can win if she makes it a boxing match but I guess the the commentary on Taylor is that maybe the, the fact that she didn't because she couldn't she's a veteran at this stage she's just she's turned 37 now? yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of my, 37 would be fine if she hadn't. She's had such a long career. You know what I mean? She's boxing at the top level. She's she's there with a target on her back. The best of the best for 24, five, you know, 23 or four years at this stage. So it's a long way. It's a long way to go. I'm just wondering, just to finish, Conor McCone, will Joe Schmidt be our nemesis of the Rugby World Cup? David Walsh, the back of Sunday Times, the exciting wing play, Will Jordan and the tacky move now of Joe Schmidt have rejuvenated All Blacks purring and back in form at the right time for another World Cup tilt. Just quoted here, from November 2021 to la- August last year, they lost six of eight tests. There were plenty who thought they should change their head coach, Ian Foster, but a year out from a World Cup, New Zealand Rugby Union was not prepared to do that. Instead, the former Ireland head coach, Joe Schmidt, was appointed attack coach and selector. A year on his influence is easy to see, especially on the precision and speed of the All Blacks ruck ball. And also to add here, later in the piece, Schmidt may well have got the pre-World Cup camp wrong in 2019, but he is as far from mindless as any coach could be. And Ireland would not be where they are now without his contribution. Do we need a better appraisal of Joe Schmidt and what he did for Ireland? Two Champions Cups at Leinster, three Six Nations titles, a Grand Slam, beating the All Blacks for the first ever time in Chicago, beating them here. Well, I view rugby sort of from a from a mid-distance to the point where every time the World Cup comes around, I assume that the All Blacks are going to win it. And... Uh, inevitably you kind of are proved right more often than you're proved wrong but David Walsh makes a a very convincing argument to the case here I sense the kind of the you know a bit like Ireland in reverse that the the new new, the All Blacks kind of body clock revolves around the World Cup you know that they seem to be able to in any cycle they go through some period of however you know brief or however existential crisis you know I mean it's almost nearly the thing that prompts the rebuild to come around to World Cup time. Um, but now the Schmidt factor is just really interesting there, you know, like the, the, the pressure that the All Blacks are under to perform when they come to World Cup time. But like, I don't even know some of the names that David Walsh is talking about here. And these are going to be the stars of the next World Cup. So it just goes to show you what, what New Zealand are always working with. And, you know, the prospect of Ireland <laughs> again <laughs> playing them in the quarterfinals you know that doesn't sound particularly appetising at this point and I think it'd be, it, it would be a crying shame that if Ireland were to kind of break the cycle and keep their form of the previous years going into the World Cup you know were they to be the second best team in it but run into New Zealand in the quarterfinal or France yeah. it would be a disaster I think John on that David Walsh has slightly buried the lead a little bit because it's the most interesting part of the article for sure and especially when he gets to the talk the discourse I guess around Ireland's previous World Cup uh, O'Connell and Henderson spoke about it during the week yeah, about it being the, oh we're not doing the mind we're playing rugby now and uh, I think Craig Casey described it as oh I heard it was barbaric off the lads and, and uh, he, he gives Dan Sheehan's quote saying you know there's no, there's not going to be any mindless army boot camps or any of that crap. I'd say, 
in the classic uh, Joe Schmidt might have learned in his short time in Ireland to pin a little article up on the uh, dressing room wall for that because we could meet the, the All Blacks in the quarterfinals yeah, we? and yeah. uh, you know that could be tasty yeah. enough just think Joe gets a bit of a bad press now we uh, always fall out with our managers though don't but we I think Vera Powell like we, we but, it, it, it ends I just, I just feel like we got short memories when it comes to, to, to people that put us on the map and everything is just everything is through the prism of the World Cup and there's no guarantee that Andy Farrell would succeed at this World Cup just no, but there's enough, like even mentioned the people who are involved in the backroom there, mentioning Henderson and Paul O'Connell. You know, that that idea, you know, the very basic idea of a losing IQ that if you, you know, eventually you'll run out of ways to lose. You know, Ireland have surely made every mistake possible at this yeah. stage going into yeah. the World Cup. And there are enough of people around that camp who were present and experienced and contributed to those mistakes. Yeah. That It'll be whether we're good enough or not now. Yeah, I think so. I yeah, think okay. so. Well, we got another, like like Vera Pau again, we fall out with our managers. Yeah. We've got the group of death in the, in the World Cup, so we've got a yeah, difficult group yeah. straight into a hellish uh, quarterfinal against yeah, France yeah. or New Zealand. So it's going to be difficult even getting past the quarterfinals again. Okay, Kevin Byrne from the Irish Sun and Conor McKellar from the Irish Independent. Thank you so much for your insight and wisdom today on the Sunday Paper Review. Cheers, John. Thanks, John.